Welcome to the September 2023 Wilderness Medicine Podcast. But first, the news. People stranded in the Nevada desert finally heading home. They were there for the Burning Man Festival. They ended up stuck out there in the desert. Our Rob Hayes joining us live with the story. Rob? As relief efforts stalled, the muddy roads trapping attendees have shown no signs of drying out. There are people in hazmat suits, and there might be an Ebola outbreak. Worse yet, they're running out of shrooms and fast. The LSD is already gone. We estimate that by this point, every attendee now has 17 STDs. If they don't get out quick and get treated, well, it's going to burn for a long time. Well, that's the most ridiculous thing I ever heard. Honestly, though, folks, I did witness what happened at Burning Man this September. There was a lot of mud, but no Ebola. No hazmat personnel, but for a few days, things got a little austere. I ran a camp of 20 individuals out there. Hosting burners to a cup of tea, we had drum circles and various workshops including wilderness survival, professional burnout, mentorship, self-defense, and for lack of a better term, spiritual realignment. Our camp was ready when the rains hit, but as roads became impossible to walk in while temperatures dropped, we would end up treating two hypothermic patients with one arguably moderate, and there was a sinkable person as well that we treated. Eight other burners sheltered in place in our camp that were otherwise well. Realizing that there would be no ambulance after having used our GMRS radios to apprise the medical clinic of the predicament we were facing, well, my team got to work getting the two hypothermic individuals warmed up while keeping our other guests warm. Fortunately, the two individuals did well the next day, and a third guy who had an episode of syncope, he didn't code on us. I guess the old adage, anytime, anywhere, applied here. All this to say that we waited out that storm and we allowed those roads to harden. Ultimately, compromising my best efforts to get this, yes, this podcast out to you earlier. But hey, this isn't the me show. It's not about me. It's about you or it's about somebody. We have a substantial podcast. Having said that, it's a little longer than I would have liked, but hey, there's some great stuff. We're going to discuss an interesting and complex case featured in the journal of the rescue of a hiker in the Cascades, bringing up the decisions made during the rescue, as well as treatment of crush injuries while touching on field amputations. Then we're going to head on over to southwestern Colorado for a brief discussion featuring ideas on how we at UNM were able to partner with an excellent mountain rescue team in Silverton, Colorado. And if you're not associated with an organization, but you're a private provider, that's okay. There's some hints in there for you too. Then lastly, we'll let Fred Bossert lead an interview regarding a real fascinating study showing how caloric depletion in Alaska backcountry hunters could actually promote muscle growth, which is the CME article. At the end of all this, I'm going to give you the Spanish and I'm going to give you the French summary. And not the me show, but we're trying to include our global listeners. So I'm going to make a stab at it in Italian. Oh, that's going to be fun. That's a spicy meatball. And for a little more torture for you, I will even attempt to do a summary in Nepali. So if Mingma Sherpa, Dr. Nima Sherpa, Mamacita, or any of my KCC friends, or even Jake, Allie, or Hans are listening, please don't laugh. I gotta practice sometime. If you ain't know that language stuff, well, you're done. Skip it. For you, the podcast is done, done as we say in Spanish. Finish. Capiche? So let's get started. <laughs>
Folks, imagine taking a hike with a friend and suddenly you find yourself trundling off a mountainside. Fortunately, you do not go off the cliff edge, but instead you become in a literal sense trapped between a rock and a hard place, wedged in a slot. And to add misery, a large boulder accompanies you in your fall, effectively wedging you. Now, three extremities are trapped. And as we will hear a self-rescue, such as what Aaron Ralston did by amputating his hand, would be impossible. Your hiking buddy is unable to move this 4,000, 5,000 pound, roughly a 2,000 kilogram boulder to free you. What happens next is the topic of our September journal article, Successful Wilderness Rescue of a Hiker with Multiple Trapped Limbs by Combined Wilderness and Urban Rescue Team using High Pressure Airbags to be discussed with our author, Dr. Joshua Corsa. Welcome, Josh, to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here and talk about this case. Absolutely. So first, tell us about your medical practice, where you are at, and how did you become involved in the rescue? What was your role? And how did you become involved in search and rescue in general? Sure. It's, I like to joke, I came by it honestly. In high school, I took an EMT class got my paramedic after that and joined the army. So I was an enlisted medic and a paramedic both at various times, urban, rural, volunteer paid for about 10 years when I decided that I kind of wanted to contribute more. And so I went back to medical school, got my associates, got my bachelor's, kind of worked my way up from there. I went to medical school, interestingly, didn't become an emergency medicine physician. I decided to take the trauma surgery route. And that kind of led to where I am today. I was out here in Washington when in the late 90s when I was in the army and I always knew I wanted to come back. So I picked a fellowship out here and saw that we had a helicopter program in Snohomish County, which is the county just north of Seattle. And I essentially pestered them for about a year or so until they finally relented and brought me onto the team. And I've been doing it now about five years or so. Give us a rundown on how this event with the hiker actually happened. Sure. So as you mentioned, he was out hiking in what's called the Enchantment, which is a very popular high altitude, at least for Washington, plateau near Leavenworth in the Cascade Mountains. So just east of the ridge of the Cascades, about on average 8,000 feet, gets a lot of foot traffic, a lot of people hiking and camping in there. And so he was out hiking when, when the boulder shifted, as you mentioned, he fell down, he became trapped by the boulder. Now, Chelan has an excellent uh, ground search and rescue team, and they also have a sheriff's helicopter. And so their resources went in and pretty quickly realized that they were going to need a lot more help. And so they called our team. And the, one of the unique things about our helicopter team, in addition to the obviously hoist and technical rescue capability, is that we're always, we always have an ALS capability. So we always have a paramedic or a physician on board. So we were activated and flew out there and began the rescue and coordinating what needed to be done. I mentioned, it's a little ironic, I got the call from my medic, Jeff, saying, Doc, we've got someone we might need field amputations. Are you, are you available? When I was on shift, I got the process started to get coverage so that I could go on the mission. I was just about in the parking lot when we got a, a stab to the chest, ended up having to take that to the operating theater, needed my second partner as well. And so I provided the remote medical direction instead of the, the much more interesting in-person portion. When your team arrived, and I see we have Jeff, I think he's the EMT, and I'm glad Perfect. to here. Yeah. Yeah. Jeff, Jeff is our lead flight paramedic now and uh, yeah, a paramedic with multiple years experience, interestingly, in both technical rescue and search and rescue. So I'll let Jeff talk more about that. 
My name is Jeff Brown. I'm the lead flight paramedic for uh, Snohomish County Helicopter Rescue Team. Uh, my day job, I'm a firefighter, paramedic, and rescue technician at our fire department uh, in northwestern Washington. My background, I'm a, I'm a SWAT medic and an austere environment medic. So we're on the federal disaster team as well. So we fly all over the country, all over the world, responding to the, the big disasters. Now, locally, I've been doing search and rescue work since I was 16, 17 years old, both on the ground and, and now in the air. To back up to the beginning of your question, what was the, the background and the plan? When, when the call came in, we got limited information. It was kind of trickling in. We found out that the victim's climbing partner had to hike about a half hour up above to get cell service and meet up with just random hikers that he found on the trail who had a phone that had service, a small spot of it. So the, the information we got was very limited at the time. And we got what sounded like a couch-sized boulder resting on somebody. And it started out as a a couch pillow, and then it then dispatch upgraded that to a couch. So something we don't we don't don't have in the back country, something that that we see in the front country, a fire department that I work for. Initially, our plan A for me was we're going to to either dig him out, create a void space underneath the object that's spinning him, and remove him that way, or use some very limited localized mechanical advantage to just you know adjust the boulder and and move him out. Plan B was going to be that we actually have to do some sort of a heavy lift uh, operation using whatever mechanical advantage that we had with us. We don't normally carry heavy lift uh, devices on the aircraft. We have rope. Uh, we have that type of mechanical advantage. But as far as urban search and rescue style uh, hydraulics or pneumatic lifting devices, that's not, not something we carry. Plan C, uh, I called uh, Dr. Corsa and our other MPD, Dr. Brown, on the way to the hangar and gave them the lowdown and said, I need you on standby for a possible surgical intervention. I don't know how bad this guy has been, but we're hearing now three limbs. And so if my mechanical advantage or creating a void space isn't going to be able to, to do this, we're going to have to find a different way. And there's, again, it's, it's an aircraft deployment. So we'll have significantly limited resources. Dr. Brown was unavailable at the time. He was, I believe, in surgery. And then Dr. Corsa took my call as he's literally walking into a surgery and said, mm, well, well, we'll see what we can do. And so my plan D then was that I'll fall back on my previous training. It's not necessarily within our current scope of practice, but I have training to, to do field amputations. And so as our very last resort, we'll, we'll do the field amputation uh, with the, the small surgical kit that I, I had taken with me. And that was kind of our plan, our setup. We talked at the hangar about what tools we have available to us. We've got climbing rope, both static and dynamic. So we're going to take complement of di or static rope and then our normal hoist complement. So pulleys and progress capture devices, and then rig whatever we thought we would be able to rig using anchor straps uh, around a bolt that we hadn't even seen yet. So we had no idea what it was. That I guess that's kind of what our, our plan was. And then when we arrived on scene, things quickly changed, finding that he was well entrapped under a larger boulder than we had expected. And that boulder was not going to be moved by any sort of lifting device that we had with us. No rope, but it just wasn't going to happen. So I requested that uh, the upcoming uh, teams from Leavenworth and uh, Chelan County bring with them lifting devices and cutting devices. So the fire department. Uh, they have pneumatic uh, airbags. They can slide under, you know, wrecked vehicles or buildings and lift a, an incredible amount of weight with just air pressure. And it'd be like using the same air tanks that we use on our backs to go into a fire. 
And then we also have hydraulic spreaders and spreaders, the jaws of life. They're extremely heavy and cumbersome and, and not a great application for the backcountry. And then jacks and high lift jacks and those types of things. So they brought a complement of what they could fit in the aircraft and that would be most useful with the limited information that I was able to pass to them. Again, we were not in direct radio communication with them. We were getting spotty information out to them. So they were kind of having to choose gear that they thought might be useful in the situation and then just kind of a bring everything. The way that the boulder had situated itself uh, on Benedict, it was held in place by about a six inch small pine tree, which was preventing it from rolling away over the cliff face. And we were only able to visualize from the patient's perspective, not the 360 degrees around the boulder. And so initially I thought if we were able to simply cut this tree away, the boulder falls away and we have access to our patient. It would be a pretty simple operation. Later on in the incident, when we finally got a 360 degree view uh, of the patient and his entrapment. We had one of the mountain rescue members uh, able to rappel over the side of the boulder and then take some pictures with his phone of Benedict's feet and legs uh, and how they were entangled. He was able to pass the phone back over to me and, and I realized that if we allowed this boulder to move uh, in that direction, it would just simply crush his feet. So that operation was, was held off. And we went to the airbag lift operation. The airbags were we're well suited for it. They're usually about an inch to an inch and a half thick when you start out. So you can slide them into very narrow spaces and then connect air pressure to them and, and slowly expand that. It kind of looks like a square beach ball, I guess. And so we were able to, to move the, the boulder enough in several directions to, to unpin his left arm and get half of him out. And then between that and some unexpected and unplanned movements of the boulder, the rest of him was able to be dug out. We were able to, to create a little bit of a void space underneath him and, and get him out underneath that direction. Now, what were you all thinking in terms of potential injury? And what was your initial plans in terms of resuscitation? Because I looked at these interesting photos and based on the interesting photos, it appears that the patient's face was pretty close to the rock. And although his airway seemed patent, Based on his ability to converse, his oxygen saturation was in the low 80s, despite giving oxygen via a non-rebreather mask. Maybe this guy had a crush injury to the chest. Well, had he decompensated, how would you have managed his airway with potentially limited space to manage that airway? You're right. The first view of him that we got, he was uh, bent over. So the, he's sitting on his, on his butt. His legs are extended in front of him. And the boulder is literally sitting in his lap. I can see just the crease of his legs as they disappear underneath the boulder and his left arm is pinned at the wrist and it's outstretched in front of him. So it's kind of trapping him against the boulder. He can lean back just a little bit. We're able to get in and do a kind of a chest exam and then reach down and then do an abdominal exam. But visualizing that was, was relatively difficult. We were able to kind of get some insulation there to, to kind of insulate him between the rock and him. But yeah, getting to his airway was, was definitely an issue to start off with. We carry a full complement of RSI medications, video laryngoscopy equipment with a vent as well. But all of those items are not designed for an extremely long duration. Our oxygen supply is extremely limited. Our vent is an oxygen-driven ventilator. We can, put, we can do 50% FiO2 and then adjust the rate, and that's about it. So it's designed more as a post-intubation. Let's get into the hospital with as limited amount of people involved as possible. So as far as airway is concerned, intubating him in a seated position, it was something that we had trained for early in med school, thinking that we'd be doing this type of thing in car accidents, you know, the, the tomahawk style intubation while they're entrapped and being extricated. Uh, that was kind of my 
expectation if we were going to need to take his airway that that would be the the route and then obviously we would fall back on planned crike the emt that i have with me they're relatively well experienced in the equipment that we carry and then we try to to increase their experience in backcountry medicine and prolonged uh patient care that being said they're not necessarily paramedics and so it, it usually isn't a smooth operation I guess to say, if we're going to do a an intubation or whatever else, it usually falls back upon a single provider and not a a full team of of individuals. As far as pharmaceuticals, we carry enough to keep them sedated and out for a significantly long period of time. So I don't think we had that much of a a concern as far as sedation or paralyzation goes. The oxygen saturations came up and down, and one of the things that we was kind of in the back of my head early on was our limited resources. Right, I don't have more than three liters of IV fluid with me. We have two bottles of oxygen and that's as about as good as it gets. Uh, and we had to dump a good portion of our equipment at a lower lake to make weight to be able to fly and have aircraft controllability at the elevation that we were at. So we kind of titrated uh, any oxygen administration to just what was absolutely necessary. And we started that way late in the operation, thinking that if we do have to intubate, I want to save as much of the oxygen as possible so I can drive the ventilator versus giving him oxygen right up front and running out of it right off the bat. Our secondary means of egress, if we weren't going to be able to fly, is about a 10-hour hike out by ground over significantly rough terrain. Well, when in doubt, Positioning is a good start for any airway. Now, we've already discussed the operation, but for some not familiar, how does the high-pressure lifting bag work? The air tanks that we use are much like scuba tanks. Uh, It's just compressed normal atmospheric air. It's not oxygen. That air is compressed in our specific bottles to either 5,500 PSI or 4,500 PSI, and that's what we breathe off of. That runs then to a regulator and then to a secondary regulator to dial that pressure down and we're putting about 100 psi more or less depending on what we need into that airbag and that airbag is made of a mix of rubber and kevlar and with relatively low psi it's able to lift and expand quite for for the amount of air that we're putting into it it's it's actually pretty impressive what it does and depending on the size of the airbag we're using we get anywhere between six to eight to ten to twelve inches of of movement and in urban search and rescue or, or collapse rescue and things like that it's a game of inches. We're not looking to, to lift the car off of you five feet. We're not looking to lift the building off of you five feet. We're looking for five inches, right? Just enough to get your leg out or just enough to, to get that pressure off of whatever's entrapping you and snake it out and disentangle it. So six inches is, is a lot when you start thinking about that type of stuff. Okay. You have a patient with likely crush injury and some sort of issue with his oxygenation or ventilation later, you found out he had pulmonary emboli in the hospital. What are some of the issues with this type of crush injury and how did you address these issues? Our our normal crush injury protocol for a long period of crush injuries, tourniquet application uh, for the uh, extremity is usually a a primary or first line treatment. And that's simply because, especially with uh, our patient, I couldn't tell what was going on beyond the the side of the boulder. I can't tell if he's exanguinating, if he's got controlled hemorrhage, uncontrolled hemorrhage, if it's open or closed or whatever else it is. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to apply a tourniquet because the boulder is situated literally right at where his thigh and crotch are meeting. So there's no way to, uh, to apply that tourniquet. IV solution and large volumes of fluid are our usual secondary go-to, right? So you're going to flush his kidneys and make sure he's well hydrated. 
I carry two liters with me. And then the other paramedic who hiked all the way up the 10 miles from the Leavenworth side carried an additional liter of fluid. So we've got three liters of fluid on scene. And again, for a 10 hour evacuation, if that's the way it goes, we're titrating that to, to just keeping his pressure up instead of actually flooding him like we should be giving him the, the crystalloids that he needs. So on the front country, yeah, we would be dumping the fluid to him and providing as much volume support as possible. And then oxygenation, obviously, we're trying to, to keep the oxygenation up and make sure the airway is clear. I carry two amps of bicarb and not necessarily designed for crush injury patients, more for prolonged resuscitation in the backcountry or things like that. But that's that was the uh, ability to, to buffer him that we had with us. So our plan then was to, during the extrication, apply the tourniquets as quickly as possible once we could reach a point uh, to get it around his leg and then do a very slow and controlled extrication. So normally when we lift something off, everything is set in place. The IVs are in, we're flowing good fluid, but we're giving a bolus prior to the lift. The lift is coordinated. The amps of bicarb are, are plugged in and ready to go. And we'll coordinate the lift with the medication administration and vitals and making sure that we're, we're kind of preparing for all of this stuff before we ever lift whatever isn't trapping them. On our situation, we didn't have that luxury. The boulder ended up moving unexpectedly and settled in a way that it released his leg just enough that we were able to rapidly extricate him and not mess around. So we didn't get the antibicarb on board prior to moving the boulder. That was afterwards. So we got those on board as soon as we got him up to a level position after the tourniquet was applied, after we realized that he had a, an open exsanguinating hemorrhaging leg, we applied the tourniquet and then got the bicarb on board as best as possible. We have limited ability to, to monitor his EKG. We do have a two lead capability, which is relatively grainy at best, but uh, I'm trying to look for any signs of, you know, crush injury, I guess. And <laughs> yeah, after thinking about it, I'm like, that's great. I can, I can see it, but I can't treat it once I gave the two amps of bicarb. So thank goodness he didn't have significant rhabdo or a long-term crush injury secondary to that type of stuff. He did have some down the road, but we were able to manage what little we could in the field with what little IV fluid and bicarb we did have. Right. Most search and rescue organizations do not have a point of care electrolyte machine, and it's reasonable to use an electrocardiogram to look for peak T waves as, you know, an indicator of hyperkalemia. And it sounds like amputation was not an option, but if it were, how would your team have done this? Can I, I'd like to say a few things before we progress about the the bicarb and that because I think that's a really common misnomer. You know, I was I was trained in you know the nineties two thousands when every crush syndrome got albuterol, bicarb, calcium, and all of that prophylactically before we ever lifted uh, the um, object off of the patient. And really, looking at most of the guidelines internationally and all the data, that's not really indicated. The main thing we need to be focusing on for these patients is aggressive volume resuscitation. The European guidelines suggest a liter prior to uh, moving the boulder and 500 an hour after that. The, the military joint practice guidelines say 2,000 prior and then a liter an hour after that. Well, the goal is that you can prevent this hyperkalemia just by keeping the kidneys functioning. And especially in search and rescue, we need to be thinking about the long term. How are we going to take care of this patient? Not necessarily in the first hour after we move the object, but what happens when we're nine hours into this? How are we going to monitor the urine output? How are we going to titrate our IV fluids to both protect the lungs and protect the kidneys? And so the paradigm is shifting. And I don't think a lot of our EMS agencies are really aware that it's much more fluid focused now. And then more, if we see hyperkalemia, then we start to treat kind of the visible symptoms of that. 
And remember when we're treating it with our bicarb, our calcium, things like that, that is a temporary treatment. All we're doing is shifting that cal all that potassium into the cell and protecting the heart. It won't last for long. Really keeping the kidneys functioning is the only durable treatment for that. And so if we're going to plan for that, we've really got to get extra medications, extra fluid, et cetera, brought into our location, staged along the evacuation route, things like that to be able to monitor our patient. What kind of time frame were we looking at here from the you arriving on scene to airbags, at least. So just so, we, so the listeners can have an idea of, of what kind of time has transpired and, and what's going on. Sure, actually, give me just a minute. I'll pull up our, our actual timeline. I can give you the times. And it's important to realize, you know, tourniquet placement, if you think the extrication will be longer than two hours, is a good idea. Make sure that tourniquet is as low as possible. We want to preserve as much tissue so that we can form a proper healthy stump for prosthetic use later on. This is not the situation to be putting a tourniquet high and tight. You want to get that as, as close to the object as possible and really reserve that for the patients that are going to be a very prolonged extrication. You know, what we're worried about is having this muscle breakdown, releasing toxins, releasing potassium acid back into the main circulation when we remove that object. And that's most likely going to happen in the thighs and your larger muscle groups. So almost exclusively the lower extremities. Um, the other thing to remember is yeah, conceptually, there's never been a, a documented permanent injury in someone who's had a tourniquet on for two hours or less. We can salvage limbs to some degree up to six or so hours. And so keeping that in your head, how long is this rescue going to take? What, you know, what are the consequences both of having that object there and our interventions? And how can we best think ahead, not just for this rescue, but down the road in terms of preserving limb function? or preserving life function. If we know they're going to be trapped for many hours and this limb is likely not going to survive, we should definitely be shifting our priorities to protecting the overall circulation and cardiac contractility. Good points. And let's go on with regard to what you want to discuss with respect to amputations, Josh. Sure. It's, yeah, you know, I'm a trauma surgeon. I've been doing this a number of years and it's still something that I was a little bit taken off guard and we shouldn't be, but I think most search and rescue systems are in the same boat. We have this abstract concept that sure it could happen, but we don't necessarily have well-developed protocols for it or the equipment for it. You see about once or twice a year on the news where some industrial accident somewhere in America and you see a bunch of people in, scrub, in scrubs, very little protective gear going out there and amputating this trapped limb. And that's a direct consequence of the fact that we don't think about this ahead of time and we don't have people that are, that are trained for it. Um, and know the indications for it. Me personally, knowing that we're in a helicopter, we're weight limited, space limited, and sometimes we have to hike in or out. I, I keep my equipment to a minimum. There are definitely you know, case reports of using sawzaws, reciprocating saws like that. For me, using a giggly saw, which is basically a medical grade pole saw or survival saw, it's a little, a little wire with teeth on it. It has worked really well for situations I've encountered either in the military or in, in other situations. That, and to be quite blunt, a large knife will usually be able to get you most of what you need. And in his situation where he was trapped, everything would have to be through an anterior approach. So you wouldn't really be able to circumferentially get around, get around his leg, even if you were able to amputate at all. In those situations with that limited space, trying to get power tools in there would be a bit of a challenge. And the boulder was sitting right in his lap. While we may be able to amputate you know, because of the, the location we affect would be creating a junctional injury, which would be, might not be amenable to tourniquet control itself and would require either tourni uh, junctional tourniquet or surgical control. Uh, so it's a really challenging situation if we would have had to go down the operative route. 
and I would imagine it would necessarily involve some training beforehand. Now, how did the patient ultimately fare? Um, I would say all things considered, he did fantastic. Uh, we still follow up with him, Jeff. I'm not sure the last last time you talked to him, but for, so from the scene, he went to a level three trauma center. There's about 15 minutes away, extremely capable hospital. He was resuscitated, taking to the operating theater with both vascular and orthopedic surgery, had fasciotomies, made sure that his vascul vasculature was intact, no clots, et cetera. He was resuscitated, put on the heparin drip for the PE, which was discovered there. He was stabilized and two days later transferred over to a tertiary care facility in Seattle, where he underwent further care, plastic surgery, flaps, et cetera. So I was a really, I mean, a wonderful example of how the trauma system is supposed to work from pre-hospital care to a very capable close facility, and then specialized care in a tertiary care facility center in a large urban area. Are there any reports in the literature using high pressure lifting bags and cribbing? And how did that mission work out between all the rescue entities that had probably never trained together? So I haven't seen a particular uh, report on this. There have been crevasse rescues, at least one with urban equipment. And then there in, I believe, Italy, there was a rescue of a patient using explosives when a larger, much boulder, much too large to be displaced with mechanical equipment trapped a patient. They actually used precision explosives to be able to get that off. But this is the first situation that we could find in the literature using these devices in a, in a boulder situation. But... To answer your previous question, approximately 900 hours is when the, the patient became in track. It took about 30 minutes for them to, to contact 911. And then we made patient contact at about 12.45, 12.50. And that's after inserting once to the what was in, believed to be the patient's location, which turned out to not be. It was a group of hikers that were kind of waving at us, not waving us down. And then we had to hoist extract from there once we were able to locate the, the patient and then reinsert at his location. So it took us a little bit to get to him. And then once we started the actual operation, I believe we were able to lift his left arm out at 1430. And then the rest of the boulder and, and the patient is moved and then the patient's extricated at 1448. Are there any last comments from any of you, including Fred on this case report? So you mentioned that the weather was somewhat prohibitive for getting the helicopter in. So what, what was the weather specifically like at your location throughout the, the whole course of, of, of this? So we did the, the weather eval when we took off. The weather looked relatively good. There was some indication that it may change later on, but on our side of the mountain, so we we're on the west side of the Cascade Mountain Range. This was in slash on the east side of the Cascade Mountain Range. So our weather was great. Uh, it was during wildfire season for us, so it's extremely smoky, and and that reduced our visibility. So most of our transit was uh, flying high above the uh, the smoke. And then once we arrived on scene, it was it was a beautiful day, sunny out, and a uh, nice breeze. But we were able to, to again maintain our craft controllability with the weather that we had. The insertions and initial extract extraction and then reinsertion went fairly well. No significant problems with wind. But once we started patient care that's when we started to see the weather change on us. We started to see a significant increase in wind. And as we were making final extraction of the patient, uh, we actually started to get some rain clouds coming over and starting to drizzle on us. The wind picked up relatively significantly and our first extraction attempt was thwarted. The aircraft wasn't able to, to maintain a hover once they deployed the hoist hook. And our, our chief pilot, who was at the controls at that time, 
has you know hundreds and thousands of hours behind my multiple aircraft and, and for him not to be able to to hold a hover in that situation it, it speaks volumes to the the weather that, that he was experiencing above us uh so where we were situated was uh, about halfway down uh kind of a cliff face um from the peak uh he was below the level of the peak and he was getting wind dropping down on top of him from the west to the east uh, and that made the aircraft very 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 unstable so that thwarted our first attempt, and then the weather just continued to get worse and worse. There was a break in the weather just about the time that we got him prepped into a different litter and ready for a ground evacuation. We're going to repel him down the or load him down the cliff face and then out to the trail uh, and try to hike him out either to again a suitable LZ or all the way out. And just about that time, our aircraft was getting ready to take off pick up the night vision equipment on the west side, refuel and come back. And they said, you know what, we're going we're to make one more stab at it. We see that the, the clouds are slowing uh, on their transit across the peaks. It looks like the weather may be calmed above us. And we said, well, we'll take whatever you can do. And he was able to hold a miraculous hover long enough to get me into the aircraft and then long enough to get the patient in the aircraft. And then our second rescuer, the ride out was extremely <laughs> bumpy, but happy to be in the aircraft and on the way to the hospital. Unfortunately, Due to those circumstances, them transiting, us having used the majority of the fuel for the first couple of extraction attempts, we didn't have the fuel on board to make the transit across the mountains against a headwind to our level one trauma center, which is our primary primary transportation point. So we ended up falling back to a local hospital that we don't really ever transport to. And they were able to, to take the patient. They have a, a helipad on the roof. The pilots did a great job at, at landing on a helipad that they have no knowledge of. And yeah, so they were able to treat and transport that, or they were able to treat Benedict uh, very, very effectively, and then transported him across the mountains via ground uh, two days later for follow-up, uh, I believe it was skin grafting. It's fascinating. My final question would be, what would you have done if you didn't have access to the airbags? What was the plan going to be? So we had a couple other lifting options that the fire department had brought. They had brought some high lift jacks they had brought a set of jaws and we would have attempted to try and, and get those underneath. But in the, the position that that boulder was, there, there wasn't any room to get the, the directional lift that we needed. So we needed to create some space, not necessarily lift in one plane of movement or spread in one plane of movement. So the, yeah, the, the fallback plan was that, that surgical intervention, flying Dr. Corsa up and having him deploy with field surgical capabilities. And if he was unable to do it, then I was going to do it myself. And we'd get on the sat phone and, and do it remotely. That was going to be the, the plan D, the last ditch effort, if we weren't able to move that boulder. Well, fortunately, the, the search and rescue, the SAR gods were smiling upon you that day. Oh, yes, they were. Well, thank you so much for taking the time with us to talk about this rescue and good luck with further rescues. The search and rescue capabilities that we just discussed in dislodging this victim, who was wedged in, turned out to be a sophisticated, well-thought-out rescue. I'm going to highlight another rescue group located in the rugged San Juan Mountains of southwestern Colorado. To say I have an affinity for this group would be an understatement. And as I listened to the conversation, 
I hope I didn't come across as extolling the virtues and vicissitudes of my parent university, the University of New Mexico. However, it could give you, the listener, an idea on how to co-op your particular program with a local search and rescue group. I hope to also give you ideas on how to augment your particular organization through a medical symposium and collaborative education, as well as getting to know the capabilities of an organization you wish to partner with. Now, the Silvertina EMS and the San Juan County Mountain Rescue Program graciously allowed me to do this entire September podcast in their headquarters in Silverton. I'm going to talk to Tyler George, the director of Silverton Mountain Rescue, and Michael Burton, who's organizing the symposium. And by the way, the symposium will take place September 29th to October 1st in Silverton. So let's get to it. I'm Tyler George. I'm the director here at Silverton Medical Rescue. I've been the director for two years now, and I've been here for, this is my sixth year here. I was born and raised in Silverton. Left for about 15 years, worked all over, went and got a college degree and worked in Alaska and lived in England and had to get back here. I had to get back into the mountains here. So, you know, slowly worked my way back and was fortunate, fortunate enough to land a job here. And then when my predecessor, Kimmet, decided to retire, I was fortunate enough to, to get his job. So I feel really lucky. I'm Mike Burton. I relocated here to Silverton about three years ago after a career as a professor in political science at Ohio University and a director of an analytics program. And before that, career in Washington as a political operative. And I consider this you know, a step up to be working directly with people and working with people like, like Tyler and as an EMT. So as a political operative, you get to work with San Juan County politics. <laughs> we were joking about that earlier. Never mind. Don't answer I, uh... that. <laughs> Yeah, actually, and that's that's my one of my other roles is I I do sit on the town board, which is the biggest mistake I've ever made. So it's <laughs> <laughs> all right, you're doing the Lord's work. So, well, this is exciting. Here we are ensconced at ninety three eighteen feet of altitude here in Silverton, Colorado, southwestern Colorado, in the heart of the San Juans. And for a couple of years, there's been this interesting event called the International. Mountain Medicine Symposium. And this is the fifth one. You guys want to talk about it a little bit? Give us as listeners kind of an update of what is going to be happening and tell us the dates. Tyler mentioned Kimmet, who was a director for several years and really made Summerton Medical Rescue what it is today. He, he took the lead in forging both search and rescue and EMS into a single unit. A lot of a lot of areas, the ambulance goes to the trailhead and then stops and waits for a search and rescue. We continue hiking on in. That requires specialized skills and specialized instruction to, to gain those skills. Kimmet, several years ago, using the relationships that he had built over the years in, you know, with people across the world who do both those things, EMS and search and rescue, and looking at what the Silverton Avalanche School does in bringing experts together to train people, not just here in Silverton, but uh, but around the region and around the country, was inspired to create several years ago the Mountain Medical Symposium, which has brought stellar individuals, both as instructors and as students who want to work on patients with who need acute care in an austere environment, to do these highly specialized skills and combine a variety of specialties. And I think it takes a special kind of person like Kemet to bring together these different communities to focus on 
exactly what we need here in our rugged environment and rugged environments that, that many practitioners see around the country. Uh, so we're uh, hosting uh, the Mountain Medical Symposium uh, from September 29th to October 1st. We will have a pre-conference workshop uh, to introduce people to rope rescue, but the main event will be prominent medical professionals and search and rescue professionals from around, from around the region and around the country to teach doctors, paramedics, EMTs, woofers, the, the latest in this kind of medicine, a very unique kind of medicine. And it's actually no joke what you guys have been doing with this conference because we have a lot of speakers that are well known internationally that have been coming and we've had workshops I think Tyler we're talking about the last time we were up here we threw somebody in the creek and did a little hypothermia lab which was very well received and it's always a lot of fun and we have some good friends from the WMS, uh, Dr. Scott McIntosh. Scotty McIntosh is coming up. Jen Dow got Dr. Allison Sheets. She's coming from Boulder, and it's going to be great. And, of course, us luminaries from the UNM International Mountain Medicine Center. Yeah, and that that's one of the, I think, the, the reason Kimmett was able to get it off the ground so easily was his relationship that he had built with UNM all of his time that he had spent as a as a chief in Santa Fe and, and working in Albuquerque as a paramedic and the relationship he built with UNM and having you guys come up. I know we were doing trainings with, you know, our team and your team together. And I think he just, he had the vision to expand on that and then offer it to other people in the area too, because that, that it is something that I know search and rescue teams, especially in, in Colorado and, and I know in some other states, you know, oftentimes you'll have high level rescue practitioners, but they may, may not have the medical background and then vice versa. You know, you'll have EMS teams that have high level medical practitioners, but they can't go in and maybe, you know, do a technical rope rescue or something like that. And so, you know, like like I said, Kimmett's vision was to combine the two and then the using his contacts at UNM and and sort of looking at the DIM program and what you all have done and and just thinking, well, in a perfect world up here, we need to combine those. And that's actually what we've done up here, as Mike mentioned a moment ago. We're one of the first services in the state that have combined EMS and search and rescue. We're no longer two separate agencies. We're now one agency. And Kimmett started that. And we actually only finally got the final go-ahead and paperwork through our county, through the state SAR board in June. And so now every all of our practitioners, everybody that works for Silverton Medical Rescue, not only can they provide medical care, at least at an EMT level, but we can also provide us care and they can all go out and do technical rope rescues, swift water rescues. They're all avalanche rescue practitioners. They can travel in the back country efficiently and, and we, can, we can give the highest level of care that we have in the county at the point of patient contact. And that's also what the symposium is, is focused on is being able to combine those two. I think, you know, he wanted to make sure that not only did you have the skills to access a patient, but then the skills to, to treat a patient where you find them. And I think a lot of it started with, with his relationship with you all down at UNM and, and in the DIM program and seeing what you had done. Currently, most of the EMTs, rescuers, are still volunteer, but you have a few paid positions right now, which is great. We do. So we've got a, a, a full-time staff of 10 people. We have about 25 PRNs, and then we've got 25 volunteers. And the dedication it takes the volunteers to, 
keep up the level of training that we, we now ask of them to be able to do not only EMS, but search and rescue techniques, th their dedication is unbelievable. And we're really, really fortunate to have as many volunteers as we do. That said, I think it might be a good model moving forward, and, and we'll speak about this at the symposium, for small mountain towns in Colorado that do have a lot of people that spend a lot of time in the backcountry and they're interested in rescue techniques and you know some medicine, it, it might be a good model for other towns to adopt to say, we've got all of these mountaineers, you know, if we can give them some medical training and, and if we host symposiums like this and make it easy for them to get some of that training, then all of a sudden you, you can have high level practitioners in a lot of places. So that's something that we're, that we're, we're practicing here, but we're also trying to spread the word and, and see if other people are interested in adopting this sort of model. Just speaking for myself, I, sh I showed up in Silverton with a mountaineering background and an ultra running background mm -hmm. and joined search and rescue and came and asked me one day if I wanted to drive the ambulance and then it just progressed <laughs> from there. That's not a terribly unique story, but I, I will say Silverton with, you know, being the, the low point at 93.18 and going up from there, it's a very easy place to feel humble about your skills. And we have so many talented people who have taught me and others so much that uh, you know, I think that we have uh, an urge to share those kinds of skills and bring in experts to teach us and to bring that to a larger community than we, than we have in this town. I, I love to say it's a very, it's a small town with a tiny population base and a lot of ways to get hurt. And it's <laughs> right. a, a good place to bring in people, not just for what we're doing here with the Mountain Medical Symposium, but immediately following that Medical Symposium is a is Foresaw, the, the, the Four Corners Snow and Avalanche, Snow and Avalanche Workshop. And so this would be a fantastic time to come in and see the colors, visit us with Mountain Medicine, and then talk to the folks at Southern Avalanche School about what they do. Right. And we honestly, we learn a lot from you guys too. So it's a really nice exchange for that. And with all the activities you have, so you have hikers, you have climbers, backpackers, and you have off-road vehicle people. You guys have participated in the Hard Rock 100. How many search and rescue cases, if you will, do you have as a call volume every month? Do you have any stats on that? Yeah, we, uh, we do. And it, Certainly varies. I will say you mentioned the Hard Rock Hundred. There, we receive almost no calls from the Hard Rock Hundred based mm. on their preparation and how good they've gotten at running that particular race. Right. I can't say enough about um, how prepared they are logistically and how rigorous they are about making sure that their racers are, you know, prepared, fit, and that the teams are fit as well. But we actually just for writing a grant, I think we went through and and crunched some numbers, and it's roughly a hundred search and rescue calls a year. That's a real rough estimate average, but some of them are as simple as somebody got lost on, you know, on a trail and we just have to go in and find them and hike them out. And, and then there's other ones where, you know, it's an OHV off of a cliff into mm -hmm. a river. And so we're combining swift water rescue techniques with, you know, steep angle rope rescue techniques and the entire time providing high level medical care. And also we have some calls last summer. We had a call that lasted roughly two weeks while we were searching for, for a long distance runner. And I can't, um, express, you know, it, the strain that that puts on, on a team such as ours, even with the amount of volunteers we have, this particular individual went into the women and was lost. And of course the women is, it's extremely rugged terrain. It, it's got, uh, several 14, 14 ers in it. And we had, thousands of hours of man, uh, man hours 
hundreds of uh, hours of uh, air resources in the area. Meanwhile, we're still running all of the medical calls in town and other search and rescue calls in the area. And so it's, and we're, and we're seeing more and more as well. We're the more users in the backcountry, And I think this is true of almost everybody I've spoken to around the country. More people are getting out and enjoying the backcountry, which is great. And we just really try and promote awareness and preparation. And, and then, yeah, we're available for when those things uh, maybe don't right. happen or fall through. Right. One of the, 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 the best illustrations of what we do and what we'd like to share and what we'd like to learn more about is Rope Rescue. This county is famous for its winding roads with high cliffs, and it is not infrequent that cars go over the edge. And we've routinized the way that we manage that kind of incident. And you, an observer, would see that the same person, the same paramedic, the same EMT who's, who's setting up the, the rigging system will go down and make patient contact and bring the patient back up. And I think that that kind of seamless interaction within a team is what we have as, as our ideal and, and think that others might benefit from. Absolutely. Well, thanks for putting this on. And so we hope to see folks in the fall in the end of September, September 29th, but the rope rescue actually begins September 27th. Yes, two days earlier. Right, uh, October 1st. It'll be fun. Anything else to add? I think we just have a website. Okay. If you can read out the website, Mike. Yeah, it's, it's M, I'll, I'll just read that, read out the, the web address. It's M-T-N-M-E-D-S-Y-M-P-O-S-I-U-M.org. So it's Mountain Medical Symposium. And if you Google Mountain Medical Symposium, that'll be the first thing to pop up. And uh, you can email us again at M-T-N-M-E-D-S-Y-M-P-O-S-I-U-M. I-U-M, at Silverton Rescue. And I'll just give my, my personal email uh, to make that a little bit easier. So I'm michael.burton at silvertonrescue.org. Thank you so much for yeah. taking the Thank time. You. And it's always, yeah, we're, it's always a real pleasure to have you. As an additional note, the symposium will award a rescue group the first annual Leo Lloyd Award for Excellence in Mountain Rescue. Leo was a visionary who worked as a firefighter, nurse, and paramedic on Life Flight Air EMS, as well as Silverton Mountain Rescue. And he was a phenomenal climber and avalanche instructor who made Silverton Mountain Rescue and EMS over a period of 20 years a huge success. Tyler credits Leo as having been instrumental in the skills he has obtained, as well as setting the Silverton EMS and Rescue Organization as one of the leading rescue organizations in the country. He's also participated, Leo, in training our Sherpas at the Kumbu Climbing Center and work with the Denali Rescue Volunteers. Unfortunately, Leo passed away last year, and so such an award named in his honor at the 5th Annual Mountain Medicine Symposium is befitting of this giant legend. for our CME journal article about the Alaska backcountry and your muscles. Hi, I'm Frederick Bossert. I'm a board-certified OBGYN, FOMM candidate in training, director of OBGYN surgical skills and simulation for the University of Tennessee College of Medicine, Chattanooga. It's great to be back. Uh, We have an interesting journal article for you today called the Alaska Backcountry Expeditionary Hunting Promotes Sustained Muscle Protein Synthesis. 
when you hit the gym grinding out set after set on the path to muscle hypertrophy Valhalla, you know you have to have the appropriate nutrients and calories to sustain and promote that muscle growth. You know that resistance training increases your muscle growth, but what happens to your skeletal muscle mass when you're on the trail, on the hunt, or on mission for an extended period of time? What happens when you have a negative energy balance during your endurance trek? Does your skeletal muscle mass that you train so hard for get consumed in the process? How is your goal or mission affected? Will you face increased musculoskeletal injury or lose functional performance? The authors of this study set out to measure skeletal muscle protein synthesis and metabolism under high levels of energy expenditure during remote expeditionary hunting in Alaska. Dr. Robert Coker is the principal investigator on this study from, our, from the Montana Center for Work Physiology. Dr. Coker, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, sir. I appreciate that. So this is a, this is a very interesting concept and, and a topic that I think is a, applicable to many of our WMS members and WM readers. Uh, I was always under the impression that the negative energy balance would be very detrimental to muscle mass. Uh, is this is this not so? Well, it depends on the circumstances, and you know that's that's one that's one of the things that makes it so interesting. So, in our studies, where total energy expenditure is approximately four thousand to six thousand calories a day, so that's two to three times what you'd expect in a sedentary individual, and with an energy deficit of two thousand calories a day, there's been no change in muscle mass as determined by MRI or lean tissue mass as measured by DEXA scans. That is, as long as the protein intake uh, is at least 0.8 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight per day. And so this data comes from our studies, multiple studies, and Alaska backcountry hunters, as well as athletes and the Yukon Arctic Ultra. And if you're not familiar with that, that's a, an event that starts in Whitehorse, Yukon and finishes in Dawson City, Yukon. And it's a 430-mile event billed as the longest and coldest ultramarathon in the world. And notably, these participants are all are exercising at low to moderate intensity for 12 to 18 hours a day with only intermittent high intensity bouts. And so these paradigms that I just described are consistent with the recent manuscript that we published on muscle protein synthesis. I see. So, well, and just so we can all be on the same page, why, why do we care about skeletal muscle mass in, in this specific setting of an ex extended expedition? Well, muscle mass is generally associated with strength and power. And in more specifically, this term muscle quality or the amount of strength that can be generated relative to the amount of muscle mass is a better marker of overall muscle health. And the reason for that or the reason behind that is the terminology includes such factors as force production, contraction, relaxation, metabolism, substrate utilization, heat generation, as well as neuromuscular control. The point is there's a fine line between an adequate amount of muscle mass for whatever activity the individual is involved in and function under those types of circumstances. And if I can go back real quickly to the first question, you know, it's it's also important to compare other ends of the spectrum, maybe. And so we know that physical inactivity, for example, and the presence of negative energy balance does result in muscle atrophy. On the other hand, there's a lot of data to support the influence of positive energy balance coupled with resistance training to support muscle hypertrophy. And so, like I said, it really depends on the circumstances when it comes to negative caloric balance and how it affects skeletal muscle. 
I see. So was your previous research what kind of led you into this? What was the impetus for this for this study? What made you want to look into this specifically? Because like we just discussed, I would have guessed if you had asked me that it would have been the opposite of what you found. So what, what, was, what was your impetus for this? Well, I, I have to say I've had a, a longstanding interest in this area, both from a personal and a professional standpoint. So I grew up in northern Georgia, and we did a lot of a fair amount of hunting off the Appalachian Trail. And I used to come out of those hunting trips, which would last anywhere of seven to 10 days. This is before I, back when I was in my early 20s, mid 20s, and I would think, man, I'm, I feel so strong. And I, and I knew that I hadn't eaten very much relative to the amount of activity. And so that's where the interest started. And then my wife and I, we both have had an overarching interest in the health benefits of what's called the hunter-gatherer lifestyle. And you know, that includes both the, the potential health benefits from organic nutrients, as well as something called movement constancy that you can see in, in some of the literature and how that might help improve health. And so my wife, in fact, did her PhD thesis on that particular topic and was the first to identify some of the superior benefits of organic protein when it comes to promoting that protein balance in humans. But then we understood that that was just part of the story. And so we used this uh, method called the W label water method uh, in conjunction with dietary recall in Alaska backcountry hunters and described, we were the, one of the, the first really to describe total energy expenditure under those types of circumstances. And we also recognized that there was negative caloric balance in these individuals, but it promoted rapid improvements in the metabolic health. And we also observed preservation in skeletal muscle that prompted the current investigation. So like a lot of people's work, they start out at one point and then, you know, over time, they not only are able to generate data, but that data leads them to the next question. And that makes sense to me. And I think that kind of leads into to what I was thinking about when, when you were saying that it would be, so what made you choose expedition hunters? And I guess you sort of started off this whole question back when you were an expedition hunter, I guess. But what made you choose expedition hunters specifically for this? Why not pro athletes? Why not the average guy off the couch? Like you said, I probably answered that question a little to some extent, but, you know, an additional wrinkle to that is that just the remote nature of the activity. These individuals have to pack in all their food, remain self-reliant as they're, you know, at least 100 miles from the nearest remote road, you know, not a, not an interstate or a highway or anything, maybe, maybe considered a highway in Alaska, but that's, that's a little bit, that's, that, that's all relative. And they have to possess the, the requisite functional ability. And so, you know, when I was living in the introduction, I think I mentioned that I was a professor at the University of Alaska Fairbanks for almost 10 years, and I've been a backcountry hunter myself. And I know that, you know, there's no convenience store, there's no Walmart, you have to take everything you need. And so it's more representative of what I was talking about in terms of the hunter-gatherer lifestyle in the past or current military operations. And that's part of the reasons why, part of the reason why we chose the expedition hunter. That makes sense to me too. Well, one thing I thought was pretty interesting was the concept of a virtual biopsy that you implemented in the study. So can you talk to me about virtual biopsy versus a physical biopsy? Yeah, absolutely. So we worked with Dr. Bill Evans, Mark Hellerstein, and Shanka Karen at University of California, Berkeley to develop this approach. And so they had done this in a variety of different clinical type applications and we thought it was potentially a, a perfect fit to help us find a little bit more information or a little bit more granular information on this topic. And I had, 
you know, worked with uh, Bill Evans before on other different projects, especially uh, a series of projects on bed rest. And so this method, you know, pardon the details, but the participants drink this enriched solution of deuterium according to a dosing protocol. And then newly synthesized proteins uh, in the muscle are labeled by this solution or by this deuterium. And then label proteins are released into the blood plasma over time. And then they can be isolated in a blood sample. And by comparing the enrichment of the proteins in the plasma to the enrichment of the water in the body, we can then measure muscle protein synthesis. And that's very beneficial in a setting like this, because you can imagine, I mean, yeah, they, they originate in this particular study, originate in Fairbanks, and then they come back to Fairbanks. But an approach like this just makes it, for lack of a better term, easier, less invasive for the participant, obviously. And they're not having to have a muscle biopsy. But another really important point is it gives you an integrated measurement of muscle protein synthesis. And what I mean by that is a lot of times when you're looking at data generated from a muscle biopsy, it's a snapshot in time. Whereas with this approach, it represents muscle protein synthesis or rates of muscle protein synthesis over the entire event or over the entire expedition. So it's like analogy might be, instead of taking a snapshot or a picture, this represents more of a video across the whole entire backcountry hunting expedition. That's really what you want to know anyway, as opposed to, you know, multiple snapshots or, or a start and stop type snapshot. You can really see how, how things go over time. Very cool. Very cool stuff. So with that said, what reductions did your negative energy balance participants experience? Well, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> about a 10% reduction in overall fat mass approximately 20% reductions in visceral fat mass and intrahepatic lipid. And these data come from previous studies as well, or a couple of different studies we published in the journal Physiological Reports, as well as significant reductions in atherogenic blood lipids. And this happens over the course of 10 to 14 days. I mean, that, if you think about that, and you have any experience with weight loss studies or any uh, knowledge of the literature in that area, these data are really remarkable. Because a lot of times you, you don't see these kinds of changes even over the course of 10 to 12 weeks. And so to see this happen so rapidly in individuals who are not obese, but would be considered recreational athletes, it is pretty impressive. Yeah, it sounds like the next South Beach diet, right? It's the, it's the next it's the next bad diet is to go on a week-long <laughs> hunting expedition out of Fairbanks. Got to be very specific to it, you know? We yeah. could uh, make a little side business off, off of I've it joked and with my, their eyes at home. <laughs> yeah, I've joked with my good friend, uh, Larry Bartlett, about that. You know, he he owns a outdoor adventure company up in Fairbanks. And I've told him, you know, if if you ever have any, any trouble with that business, we could always pivot and go into the weight loss arena. Absolutely. So that makes sense with the the reductions they experience. Now, is so is muscle remodeling happening despite chronic physical stress and the negative caloric balance then? Same so, you know, the one of the, the points here, though, that I like to make is that you know, these types of scenarios haven't been studied near as much or near as extensively as resistance training under the conditions of positive caloric balance. And, you know, and the most recent mechanistic data that we have on muscle remodeling that might be applicable to these studies as a review article published by Jonice in Exercise and Sports Science that supports the role of satellite cells or muscle satellite cells in this process. 
And it seems like from her data that aerobic exercise training stimulates a shift and oxidative phenotype of the muscle that what that means is it increases a proportion of type one or slow twitch fibers or hybrid muscle fibers without hypertrophy. And so it's, it's the muscle remodeling is different than what you would expect associated with resistance training and it increases in strength, but actually is in, intuitively consistent with what you would expect. If these individuals are stressing their oxidative system, then it's adapting appropriately to help them become better and better at it. Even over the course of a short training period like this, yeah, I mean, I think you could call this Alaska backcountry hunting expedition a training period, albeit short. Yeah, and I think Daryl had, we were talking about this a bit ago, and, and Daryl, I think, had some interesting points to add to that. Yes. So, Robert, it appeared that total lean tissue mass increased to about a third of a kilogram, 0.3 kilograms or more overall, and that fat mass actually decreased 0.6 kilograms. So it was interesting that the leg tissue mass actually decreased, presumably from walking where the legs are the most exercised. And I was kind of wondering why tissues, except for the leg, gained muscle mass. And, you know, my understanding is that fat is metabolized in individuals who have spent time in caloric deficits. And these individuals were likely well-conditioned, these individuals in your study. But perhaps a new hunter or in the operational context, a new soldier might lose lean muscle mass before fat is lost. This is just amusing I had. I don't know if you have any comments about this sort of thing or specifically why the hunters actually lost lean muscle mass in their legs. My answer to that question would be to not only look at the, the data in that and in, in the current manuscript, but then also the previous two manuscripts. And in general, and the reason why I say that is in general, we see just muscle preservation across the board. And more specifically, uh, you know, lean tissue mass, it, it gives us an index of, of what's happening in terms of skeletal muscle, but it's not necessarily as specific as it might need to be. For example, in some of the previous studies, we use MRI to measure cross-sectional changes in cross-sectional area of the skeletal muscle and the leg and the quadricep and the hamstring. And we did not see any significant difference, significant changes in muscle. Now, your question about individuals who are more well-trained or less well-trained or somewhere in the middle, finding out how those individuals respond and potentially respond differently is, you know, is a very, very interesting question. And, you know, it's at this point, we, we don't have an answer to that. But yeah, it's it interesting to us and something that we are potentially aware of and would like to get more data on that topic. Which that dovetails beautifully into my next question, which are, what are the next steps in this field? Well, Dr. Ruby and I have been uh, fortunate enough to receive uh, a few grants from the Department of Defense to support additional studies in this area. And what we're planning to do, in fact, we've already started on some of these projects, is measure the influence of physical nutrient and or environmental stress on something called muscle proteome dynamics. And so before anybody's eyes glaze over and they start to fall asleep, what that means is instead of just measuring muscle protein synthesis in a general sense, we're going to be a lot more specific in our approach. And so we're going to measure proteins that are dedicated to improving the, the metabolic characteristics of the muscle. In other words, how it, and kind of going back a little bit to Daryl's question, 
you know, are some individuals better at metabolizing fat compared to proteins and how do the proteins in the muscle, how do they change with regard to the mechanisms involved in what we call bioenergetics or the conversion of substrates like fat, protein, and carbohydrate to ATP or an energy source. And then we're also going to measure proteins dedicated to the contractile function of the skeletal muscle, like strength or and power, you know, how do those proteins respond as well as just the structural integrity of the muscle. So the point being the muscle is not just this, you know, glob of tissue that's relatively nonspecific in its function. It's actually highly specific. And so there's hundreds of muscle proteins that we'll be measuring in, in these studies. And this approach allows us, like I say, to measure these and provides far greater specificity. And the reason why that's important is, or at least important to the Department of Defense, is it will hopefully inform training strategies as well as the development of appropriate countermeasures or uh, nutritional um, recommendations in that regard. That's fascinating. And, and I think that could, could go a long way from my experience in the military. I think that would go a long way to help fashion and, and, and mold the, the training environment, make it as realistic and, and as useful to the individual soldier as possible. So that's I mean, fantastic. So, Robert, I was looking into Dr. Chris McGlory's research from Canada, and he's been looking into the possibility that high doses of omega-3 fatty acids might positively influence protein muscle synthesis. And they use something crazy like five grams a day. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with this work or if the subjects or if any subjects could get by on a caloric deficit while ingesting omega-3 fatty acids during exercise and gain muscle mass? Very interesting question. I, I am aware of some original studies, even in older adults, published by Bettina Mittendorfer's group and at Washington University in St. Louis, where they gave relative, like you're talking about, relatively high doses for a period of time. I can't remember exactly how long, but it was a, it was a period of weeks. And they showed that omega-3s do, in fact, or can, in fact, influence rates of muscle protein synthesis. So, you know, the, the point is, you, you alluded to Chris's work, there's certainly uh, enough data out there to support additional investigations in that regard, and how omega-3s might be facilitatory and promoting those kinds of adaptations. That being said, there's some other, with high doses or higher doses of omega-3s, not all individuals tolerate those very well. It can cause some GI distress and things like that. But if I was thinking about doing that or thinking about taking high doses or higher doses of omega-3s, I would try it at home before I went out into the remote backcountry just to make sure that that uh, I didn't have any problems with it. But there's a theoretical and I think a scientific basis for that assertion for those recommendations. Yeah, it'd be hard to follow the leave no trace. You know, uh, uh ideology if uh, <laughs> if you hadn't tested that at home at first i mean it's a good idea it's a good strategy i should say not just an idea it's a good way to think about okay how am i going to respond to this in the backcountry and if you test it at home whether it's gear or whether it's some kind of nutritional supplement or something like it's it's always it's always valuable information to get in the in the comfort of your home before you put yourself in austere circumstances it's a very good point because we find that when we have been medical directing these ultra marathons or we're going on expeditions, there's some people that invariably haven't tested things before they leave. And it does cause trouble oftentimes. Sure. 
I'd like to express my appreciation for this podcast and, and the publication of our work in wilderness environmental medicine. Thank you very much. Well, and it's an interesting article and the work that you all do in Missoula never disappoints. So thank you very much, Robert, for joining us. Thank you, sir. Here are the summaries. Bueno, primero discutimos el artículo Rescate exitoso de un excursionista con múltiples extremidades atrapadas en la naturaleza por parte de un equipo combinado de rescate urbano y de naturaleza. Un excursionista cayó por la ladera de una montaña y quedó atrapado por una roca que pesaba varias toneladas y le atrapó varias extremidades. Su compañero de excursión tuvo que caminar media hora para conseguir cobertura telefónica. La información proporcionada para búsqueda y rescate fue limitada. Se desplegó un helicóptero de rescate y encontraron al sujeto atrapado entre la roca y una superficie dura. La decisión de utilizar una cuerda mecánica se consideró poco práctica mover ligeramente la roca, lo que había perjudicado al sujeto intentar una amputación que habría sido muy difícil en un miembro dado que habría sido necesaria una amputación a la altura de la cadera y con amputaciones en una zona de unión hubiera difícil el control de la hemorragia, ya que en este sitio no se puede aplicar un torniquete. Bueno, eso estaba descartado. El equipo de búsqueda y rescate pidió ayuda mutua y pidió a un servicio prehospitalario urbano que proporcionará la cuarta opción, utilizando una bolsa de aire inflable para levantar la roca del paciente. Esta última opción parecía la mejor, pero el equipo tenía que asegurarse de que el paciente tuviera buenas vías respiratorias y mantenerlo lo más caliente posible. Se discutieron estos temas y al paciente se le colocó una vía intravenosa y se le administraron dos litros de cristaloides y manteniendo una buena oxigenación. Se administraron dos amperios de bicarbonato de sodio para proteger contra la hipercalemia por lesiones por aplastamiento de varias horas de duración. No se pudo realizar el acceso al torniquete. Llegó el conjunto o aparato de bolsa de aire de Kevlar de goma. Y utilizando tanques de alta presión, se inflaron las bolsas a medida que se administraban los medicamentos. Aunque esto no sucedió perfectamente, la idea era prevenir la hipercalemia causada por el aplastamiento de los músculos grandes del muslo. La bolsa inflada elevó la roca varios centímetros y el paciente quedó libre. Una gran hemorragia fue tratada con un torniquete. El mal tiempo retrasó el transporte y el paciente sufrió una embolia pulmonar. Al paciente le fue bien en el hospital. La discusión versó sobre las amputaciones en el campo que deberían practicarse de antemano. El éxito del rescate se debió a que equipos urbanos y de búsqueda y rescate bien capacitados trabajaron bien juntos. 
Segundamente, sabemos que una forma de promover el crecimiento muscular es mediante el entrenamiento de resistencia y la cantidad adecuada de nutrientes. Pero, ¿qué sucede si estás en una misión de resistencia? Como la caza, el montañismo o el ejército, la síntesis y el metabolismo de las proteínas del músculo esquelético bajo un alto gasto de energía durante un largo periodo durante una expedición de caza remota en Alaska fue el tema de nuestra investigación continua. Bueno, artículo de informe breve sobre educación médica. Los autores del estudio admitirían que un déficit calórico de un tercio de lo que se necesitaría daría como resultado una pérdida de masa muscular durante el ejercicio prolongado y de alta intensidad. Se midió la ingesta calórica, mientras que se midió el tuterio o proteínas marcadas con agua pesada que se incorporarían al músculo medida a lo largo del tiempo del estudio. Este fue un buen diseño de estudio, sin la necesidad de realizar una biopsia muscular invasiva que debería repetirse varias veces. Los marcadores moleculares de la cinética de las proteínas musculares se midieron mediante la reacción en cadena de la polimerasa en tiempo real. Sin embargo, solo se eligieron cuatro participantes sanos por las razones explicadas. Tal vez por qué? Sí, a todos se les realizaron dos biopsias musculares reales, además de las medidas de suero mediante una exploración con DEXASCAN, la biopsia muscular virtual, entre comillas. Las biopsias reales tenían como objetivo examinar las regulaciones moleculares. Los resultados fueron interesantes. Estos cazadores perdieron grasa hasta aproximadamente un kilo medio pero ganaron masa muscular magra, como lo demuestran las ganancias de aproximadamente un tercio de kilogramo en total. Esos resultados podrían ser aplicables a otras actividades de resistencia de larga duración, pero, como dicen, se necesitan más estudios. Gracias. Tout d'abord, nous avons discuté de l'article Sauvetage réussi en milieu sauvage d'un randonneur avec plusieurs membres, coincés par une équipe combinée de secours en milieu sauvage et urbain. Un randonneur est tombé sur le flanc d'une montagne s'y s'est retrouvé coincé par un rocher pesant plusieurs tonnes, coinçant plusieurs membres. Son partenaire de randonnée a dû marcher une demi-heure pour obtenir une réception téléphonique. Les informations fournies au service de recherche et de sauvetage étaient limitées. Des secours par hélicoptère ont été déployés et ils ont retrouvé le sujet coincé entre le rocher et une surface dure. La décision d'utiliser une corde mécanique avantage jugée peu pratique de déplacer légèrement la roche, ce qui aurait été nul au sujet d'étenter une amputation, ce qui aurait été très difficile sur un membre, étant donné qu'une amputation au niveau de la hanche aurait été nécessaire. Et avec des amputations au niveau d'une zone de jonction, aurait rendu impossible le contrôle de l'hémorragie. 
puisqu'un garrot ne peut pas être utilisé sur un tel site. Bien, ce qui a été exclu. L'équipe de recherche et de sauvetage a appelé à l'entraide en faisant appel à un service préhospitalier urbain pour proposer la quatrième option en utilisant un airbag gonflable pour soulever le rocher de patient. Cette dernière option semblait la meilleure, mais l'équipe devait s'assurer que le patient disposerait des bonnes voies respiratoires et les garder aussi au chaud que possible. Ces problèmes ont été discutés et les patients a eu une ligne entraveineuse et a reçu de litres de cristalloïdes tout en maintenant une bonne oxygénation. Deux ampères de bicarbonate de sodium ont été administrées pour protéger contre l'hypocaliémie causée par des blessures par écrasement de plusieurs heures. L'accès au garrot n'a pas pu être effectué. L'ensemble où l'appareil d'airbag Kevlar est arrivé et à l'aide des réservoirs à haute pression, les sacs ont été gonflés au four et à mesure que les médicaments étaient administrés. Bien que cela ne se soit pas produit parfaitement, l'idée était de prévenir l'hypercaliémie due à l'écrasement des gros muscles de la cuissa. Le sac gonflé a soulevé le rocher de plusieurs centimètres et le patient était libre. Une hémorragie importante a été traitée avec un garrot. Le mauvais ton a retardé le transport et le patient a eu une embolie pulmonaire. Le patient s'est bien comporté à l'hôpital. Et ben voilà, la discussion a porté sur les amputations sur le terrain qui doivent être pratiquées au préalable. Le succès du sauvetage est dû à la bonne collaboration des équipes urbaines et des recherches et sauvetages bien formées. Et deuxièmement, nous savons qu'un moyen de favoriser la croissance musculaire consiste à pratiquer un entraînement en résistance et à consommer une quantité appropriée de nutriments. Mais que se passe-t-il si vous participez à une mission d'endurance comme la chasse, l'alpinisme ou l'armée La synthèse et le métabolisme des protéines musculaires squelettiques soumis à une dépense énergétique élevée pendant une longue période au cours d'une expédition de chasse isolée en Alaska ont fait l'objet de notre Étude continue. Et bon, l'article de bref rapport sur l'éducation médicale. Les auteurs de l'étude admettraient qu'un déficit calorique d'un tiers de ce qui serait nécessaire entraînerait une perte de masse musculaire lors d'un exercice prolongé et de haute intensité. L'apport calorique a été mesuré tout en mesurant le deutérium ou les protéines marquées à l'eau lourde qui seraient incorporées dans le muscle mesuré tout au long de la période de l'étude. Il s'agissait d'une bonne conception d'étude sans qu'il soit nécessaire de réaliser une biopsie musculaire invasive qui devrait être répétée plusieurs fois. Les marqueurs moléculaires de la cinétique des protéines musculaires ont été mesurés par réaction en chaîne par polymérase en temps réel. Cependant, seuls quatre participants hommes bonne santé ont été choisis pour des raisons expliquées. Peut-être... Parce que, oui, ils ont subi de biopsies musculaires réelles. Oh, C'est horrible, n'est-ce pas En plus des mesures de sérum utilisant un scan de DEXA, la biopsie musculaire virtuelle, entre guillemets. Les biopsies elles-mêmes avaient pour but d'examiner les régulations moléculaires. Le résultat était intéressant. Ces chasseurs ont perdu de la graisse jusqu'à environ un kilo et demi. Mais on gagnait en masse musculaire comme un témoigne des gains d'environ un tiers de kilogramme en total. 
de tels résultats pourraient être applicables à d'autres activités d'endurance de longue durée. Mais, comme on l'a dit, des études supplémentaires sont nécessaires. Merci beaucoup. Abbiamo discusso l'articolo Sabotaggio Oreo Schito di un excursionista con più arti intrappolati da parte di una squadra combinata di soccorso urbano e selvaggio. Un excursionista è caduto dal fianco di una montagna, rimanendo intrappolato da un masso del peso di diverse tonnellate, intrappolando diversi arti. Il suo compagno di escursione ha dovuto camminare mezz'ora per ottenere la ricezione del telefono. Le informazioni fornite per la ricerca e il salvataggio erano limitate. È stato inviato elicottero di soccorso e hanno trovato il soggetto incastrato tra il masso e una superficie dura. La decisione di utilizzare una corda meccanica vantaggio ritenuto poco pratico, spostare leggermente la roccia, cosa che avrebbe fatto male al soggetto, tentare un'amputazione che sarebbe stata molto difficile su un arto, dato che sarebbe stata necessaria l'amputazione dell'anca e con amputazione in un'area giunzionale avrebbe reso impossibile il controllo dell'emorragia, poiché un laccio emotatico non può essere utilizzato in un sito del genere che era escluso. La squadra di ricerca e soccorso ha chiesto aiuto reciproco, invitando un servizio preospitaliero o emergenza urbana a fornire la quadra opzione utilizzando un airbag confiabile per sollevare il masso del paziente. Quest'ultima opzione sembrava la migliore, ma il team doveva garantire che il paziente avesse buone vie aree e mantenerlo il più caldo possibile. Questi problemi furono discussi e al paziente fu posizionata una linea endovenosa e furono somministrati due litri di cristalloidi mantenendo una buona ossigenazione. Sono stati somministrati due ampere di bicarbonato di sodio per proteggere dall'ipercalemia, dall'azione da schiacciamento della durata di diverse ore. Non è stato possibile effettuare l'accesso con il laccio emostatico. Il gruppo apparato del airbag in Kevlar Goma è arrivato e, utilizzando bombole ad alta pressione, le borse sono state gonfiate mentre venivano somministrate i farmaci. Sebbene ciò non sia avvenuto perfettamente, l'idea era di prevenire l'ipercaliemia dovuta allo schiacciamento dei grandi muscoli della, della coscia. Il sacco gonfiato sollevò il masso di diversi centimetri e il paziente era libero. Una grande emorragia è stata trattata con un laccio emostatico. Il maltempo ha ritardato il trasporto e il paziente ha avuto un'embolia polmonare. Il paziente stava bene in ospedale. La discussione riguardava le amputazioni sul campo che dovrebbero essere praticate in anticipo. Il successo 
del salvataggio è dovuto a squadre urbane e di ricerca e soccorso ben addestrate che lavorano bene insieme. Grazie. Fahili hamile lecco barema chalfal garion. Samyo ukta ushar ekstan gasoheri uta toli daradere faseka. Ambaru bareka hai karko saf utsa itsan udar. Ek parva tatoli paharko cheona kose dere tanto kodunga le faseko tio dere kuta turfase. Unko hiking partner. Lefon recepción lina ada granta hinu pareko tio. Kozlo darka lagidieko zankari simitio. Helicopter uda katai eko tio. Ratimiharu le bisayeb boldara ek korab sotab bif jori eko betayo. Mecánico duriko faita bayo garnemien na ailai aberbahali manhinsa cha tanai turesana. Jesley Bisel Laihami Puliahunsa Angrabi Chetan Prayaskar Detsa Junek Aundana Teregaru Uta Kutama Teregaru Hunetio Kinake Hitna Abichetan Avochet Hunetio Ratsan Sanal Maamba Bi Chetangol Daro Tasfab Mientran Asambar Hunetio Kinake Esto Saitna Turneket Bayogarne Soke Dainan Sasle Ashvikar Garieko Tio Koslo Uda Tolilecho Tovigalpa Pratangarna Sohari Pre Hospital IMS Sevana Parspadik Sayetra Kalko Lagi Avangario Birame Bata Dunga Utana Inflatable Airbag Prayo Gari Yo Antim Vikalpa Sabei Banda Ramro de Quintio Tara Tolileo Sunis Chik Garnupario Ki Biramico Bayumar Ramro Hunecha Rabirami lai sarkesama laina rakna. Imudar haru chalfal gario. Rabirami lai ekna sama laina raki eko tio raramro aksijen kayam rakte duilitar kristaloid haru dio. Dui amp sodium bicarbonate dio. Hyperkalemia bata yoga una dere gantako avadiko diko kras chota rubata. Torniket bayo garne sake ena. Kevelar rubber eara bag assembly upakarana ai pugio. Rautsa dabav tianki haru prio garera aushadi haru dida chola haru fulayo. Yadapio puna rupna huna sakena bizar tula tigraco manza pesi kucha patrahe. Hyperkalemia hai rohnatio. Fulaya eko cholale dunga dere centimeter utayo. Rabiramini sulkatie ekturlo raktasarek. Turniket sanga upachar gariekotio. Harab mausam le dilai dilo rabiramilai pulmoneri embolos tio. Aspetalma birami le ramro gare. Chalfal field amputation matio jun pahile abayaska garnu parsa. Ramro talimprato, sohari rakostata o datali ramro sanga milera, kam gareko le udako safal tabaye koho. Tanyavad. Hariyo bhannu ni kanchitio rani bona, pohelo bhannu sunkhani sunamiru nirmaya. Khali jayile mali dukha tuncha, Allah samjara basta o din bari, sabi bahara bhaise kyo? 
तेरे का बल्ला तल्ला फिल्म के रूने संगे उटा राम रो सपना देखे को त्यो पनी बुड़े ले कती कच कच That'll do it for this edition of the Wilderness Medicine Podcast. This is a production of Elsevier, so be sure to fill out the CME questions. Be safe, get educated, and have fun outside. And please contact us for further questions, and until next time.